This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Thank you. Let's uh, put our hands together and um, uh, show our uh, respect by uh, reciting um, Namo Tassa Bhagavato together with me. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa And in English Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Friends, in speaking to you about the enlightenment factor of virya, energy or effort, I want to emphasize that our dear teacher, the Blessed One, uh, so brilliantly um, showed us the way to build up from things that are very ordinary, very simple, uh, things that we have, in ordinary life, if you're a human being, if you've ever been a student, a parent, a, an employee, or somebody who was hungry and needed to eat, or you, then you you have had uh, experiences uh, relevant to arousing energy and making effort. And then what the what the Buddha does is he builds these bridges, these many pathways where you can take your ordinary experience, and then learn how to uh, develop the mindfulness and the full awareness to imprint in the mind what it is and how it works, something that's beneficial in your life. And then having gotten that in, in your mind, you can turn that internally and apply the same pattern to doing the subtle work of contemplation and to doing the uh, ever more and more uh, refined work of uh, mental purification uh, towards uh, creating um, a space of uh, stillness and clarity which is uh, the space where the 
liberating insight is able to be directly experienced, resulting in that profound transformation, which we, would, we could call uh, enlightenment or awakening. So uh, you have what you need to wake up. You just uh, uh, can be uh, grateful that uh, there are, is, are teachings that show you how to uh, direct that and build it up and go step by step uh, to uh, uh, develop it to a level where it becomes a powerful spiritual faculty uh, supporting uh, awakening, a deep transformation of the mind and heart. Here's a a simple metaphor um, for a right effort. Uh, there's in the in the uh, verse that uh, in the explanation the the stock the standard explanation of uh, right effort, which is part of um, the eightfold noble path. There's a kind of a, a refrain. It goes in Pali, Chandang Janeti Vayamati, Viryang Arabati, Chittang Panganhati Padahati. And uh, what that means, uh, Chandang Janeti, Chanda is the wish, and Janeti is you cause the wish to be born. So you make that first decision, that wish to do something, in this case, the wish to practice. Uh, I will compare that to uh, getting in the car and uh, turning on the ignition. Okay. And then uh, the next uh, word in that refrain is vayamati, uh, which means, um, you know, the English translations, this is why I'm trying to help you out, because if you read in books about right effort, one of them means endeavor, endeavor, and one one of them means effort, and the other one means ardency, and it's kind of like difficult to know. It's just a lot of confusing synonyms, and you can't see how one thing leads to another. So that's why I'm going to explain it to you. Vayamati is mati. The the root word has to do with uh, attending on something or uh, giving a nourishment. And then uh, it's got the V, which makes it intense, and the A, which makes it even more intense. So V-A-M-A-T-I. So it's an intensification of the nourishment. So I'm going to compare that with step on the gas. So you put some fuel into um, your endeavor. Uh these two steps of the path to me um, as a woman and as a bhikkhuni they have a sort of a feminine energy because women are very interested in giving birth that's kind of the woman's domain and then the the nourishing is also kind of a traditional archetypal uh, thing for for, um, women to do Um, um then um, the next one is called Viryam Arabati. And uh, so this is where we 
bring up our macho side of our uh, uh, practice because uh, uh, virya is the uh, related to the word for hero and is related to the word for virile. So this would be like your your manly strength. Um, and arabati um, uh, means uh, to uh, stirring up. So for me, uh, when I think of a hero, I think of somebody who um, maybe like a um, I don't remember the name. Says so Frodo that you had in in uh, the Ring Cycle. He's just some like little guy, but then he does these amazing things. He he goes on all these amazing adventures, and he finds his his courage, and he does things that was like who could imagine that somebody who was in this little hobbit hole would be able to to uh, uh, save the world um, in as as he did. So, so the virya, what the hero thing is to go beyond. I think that that with this energy, what this uh, signifies to me as I ponder about it, is the kind of strength that you need to go beyond where you went before. Um, I find it's very useful to think about actual examples from our ordinary life when we've used these kinds of energy. So like if um, if I feel depressed or sleepy and I just don't want to get started and I can finally, like something shifts and I'm able to get out of bed or to do something that I've been hesitating to do, that's like that starting up energy. Um, and then if I uh, have some kind of... Um, um, a weak intention and then I give it more nourishment to make it something that can come to reality that would be like the the energy of, of uh, nourishing um, at my uh, uh, the hermitage uh, I'm responsible for the maintenance of the buildings and grounds and I have a list of the chores that need to be done as far as fixing things up and maintaining them and like that. And I have um, more than 75 chores on my list. So now I'm my personality type is the one that is famous for making castles in the air. And when I finished this list, I felt so much better. <laughs> so then anytime somebody files a complaint about something, I said, don't worry, it's on the list. <laughs> so, so this is that's, that would be like a weak intention you know I've made the intention to the extent of putting it on the list but then the, the stronger intention would be say okay um, I've got the materials at hand the weather looks good I've, I've got a day available let me say this is the day that I'm going to you know uh, put the stain on that deck or, or, do, or do some kind of repair or something like that um, and it's it's very interesting to see then what what is it that happened that triggered that extra, extra something that made me it could be because like company is coming and all of a sudden you know because of of that that uh, stimulation like a social something has then triggered me or it could be because um, I've been away for a while traveling um, and. Then when I come home, this sort of like this nesting thing comes up, and it says, "Well, let me 
you know, clean something. Or it, it could be another way this happens, uh, the nesting things happens very strongly um, when people arrive in our community and when they depart from the community. So whenever somebody comes to the end of their visit and they leave and they, there's a shift and there's something, you know what I mean, that says... So so the, the point I'm trying to make is when we learn to observe ourselves through daily life with a lot of mindfulness and a lot of awareness, uh, seeing what is arising naturally and then uh, trying to then learn how to take a hold of what arises naturally and then direct it and steer it so that then we're able to use these uh, tendencies uh, for our own benefit and apply some you know, higher wisdom and direction to, to, to use these things uh, uh, and then ultimately to take the same um, joy that our steadiness that I might have in painting the deck and think, can I use that same kind of steadiness in sitting on the cushion and watching the breath? Uh, and then in that formula, um, the last, uh, um, the, the next one is called uh, Chittang Paganhati, uh, which uh, chitta is the mind and paganhati is taking hold. So it means take hold of the mind. Uh, what that is uh, actually referring to is something that's uh, particularly relevant to meditation, and that is where the, we are applying the mind to the object. So, uh, some uh, times when we're teaching a beginning meditator, if a person is very distracted or if they spend a lot of time being involved with concepts and not very much time being in tune with the body, and we invite them, say, to uh, scan the sensations in, in the body, it could happen for some people that they're not sure that they can perceive, even perceive the sensations in the body because they're out of touch. And so then it may be a learning process to be able to uh, get a good connection with the object. So if the mind is not so not sleepy and dull, but the mind is bright, alert, and aware, and if it, whether it be the breath or any other of the particular um, objects of meditation for the mind to have a, a connection with its object. They say that the um, first jhana are the first uh, of the levels of uh, samadhi uh, concentration is uh, characterized by vitaka vichara, which is called applied thought and sustained thought. Uh, the applied thought is uh, compared to when we hit the bell. So when the bell connects, that's the applied thought. Uh, in watching the breath or something else that is has a natural rhythmic quality, you have a beautiful reminder to connect at the beginning of the breath and to connect at the middle and the end of the breath so each time the breath is changing 
you get another invitation to connect and notice what is this, how is this experienced. And then when you turn from the in-breath to the out-breath, you have another kind of a reminder to come back to full awareness and be aware of how that out-breath feels. So that's applying the mind. Um, there's a uh, an aspect where the Dhamma, as it's taught in the suttas, in the early teachings of Buddhism, uh, relates to what we know about um, the way um, the mental process is described uh, these days through uh, science and neuroscience and uh, so forth like that. Uh, My favorite uh, 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 scientist, uh, one of my favorite scientists these days is uh, here in California at uh, USC, USC, I think. It's called Antonio Damasio. And, and he emphasizes how there's a, uh, there are physical changes in the body that are um, ar- arousing from what you could say is uh, instinctive or um, either emotional um, um, arousal, which is triggered by some kind of a trigger. And uh, then um, part of the uh, physical change has it to do with attention. So when a person becomes emotionally aroused, not only are they getting hormones happening in the bloodstream that make them feel good or feel badly, they are also getting, um, like the way the eye is focused, the way the uh, our blood is, uh, the, the sympathetic nervous system is aroused and the the uh, uh, blood is flowing to the extremities, to the hands and feet, and so that there's there's a kind of like a bodily uh, sensitivity. And the parts of the brain that are involved with perception can be... Um, or, um, activated so that one then really pays attention to the object that's uh, triggered this arousal. Uh, Now, if this is happening uh, because of alarm or because of um, lust, uh, you could say, well, it's not really a wholesome process in terms of the Dharma or in terms of, of meditation. Uh, but there is also a kind of um, arousal of, of uh, we could say, joyful interest, which is not necessarily connected with uh, negative or impulsive emotional reactions, but is, is simply um, this... Uh, could be a sense of wonder or a sense of curiosity or a sense of wanting to investigate the step part, the factor that you studied last week of um, investigating dhammas. So, so there's something that happens physically and something that happens mentally where the attention uh, wakes up and you, the mind, then. Now we've gone from the physical to the mental. Uh, brain is part of physical, mind is part of mental, um, then the mind connects with the object. 
So that chittang paganhati, that's a component of what right effort or what energy is. And then the last one is parahati, uh, uh, which uh, uh, again the standard translation is uh, striving, which doesn't tell you very much about what it means. But uh, I have uh, found uh, evidence that we can take that to mean uh, sustained attention. So applied thought and sustained thought, that's the part of of what we're, what we're developing in, um, in when we develop uh, samasamadhi or um, uh, concentrated meditation. So the applied thought is the when when the gong strikes and then the sound that continues is the sustained thought. Or it could be that another way that the sustained thought is considered is like as if one were taking an object and sort of exploring and experiencing the entire, you know, all the different aspects of the object. And so that's another way of thinking about sustained thought is that the sustained thought is staying on the object and it's, it's just looking at different, the shape of different parts of the object that we're focusing on. So if the object is um, uh, uh, let's say um, in meditation, if if we're taking an open field of awareness to uh, be alert to any uh, sense, anything that's coming up from the physical senses, and just trying to notice accurately whatever is coming up that's prominent coming from the senses, there's quite a lot of diversity. That's a complex uh, subject, and so then within that. There are many different places that one could be looking around and exploring it. And that exploring would be part of uh, sustained thought. So that's one way to think of what um, uh, understanding what is meant by this factor of energy. It's not just one thing, but it's sort of a, compl- a, a group of different aspects. Um, there's one a group of suttas which you can study. It's in the Samyutta Nikaya and it's in uh, it's called the Bodjanga Samyutta. So the Bodjangas are the factors of enlightenment and um, the Bodjanga Samyutta is a bunch of little short small teachings about the different Bodjangas. And in the same chapter it gives a lot of information about the hindrances and sets up the five hindrances and the seven factors of enlightenment in partially as being in um, a sort of a complementary uh, relationship where we're learning how to uh, 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 suppress the hindrances and uh, promote the factors of, of awakening, the bojangas. Um Within the Bodjanga Samyutta, there's a few short teachings on the subject of nutriment, uh, which I've always, for the longest time, found it to be so uh, 
encouraging. Uh, sometimes you want to accomplish something, but you don't know how. You want to get rid of anger, but you don't know how. You want to uh, obtain energy for your meditation, but you don't know how. And so then in this uh, section on nutriment, it speaks about what's involved with um, developing the nutriment factors uh, that support what you're trying to develop and also knowing what are the factors that denourish um, what you're trying to develop. And then if you're not able to develop your goal, you develop the supporting conditions. So you can intentionally uh, build up supporting conditions for having right energy or making right effort. And then as a result of investing in doing the groundwork of building a, a platform uh, for for right energy, then you have uh, got... Um, you create a situation where it can basically arise by itself. Um, one of the descriptions of the nutriment for right energy is the kinds of energy. And so that would be, uh, in this case, I gave you five parts of energy. Uh, uh, you turn the ignition, uh, 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 step on the gas, um, you go beyond where you went, uh, you have um, applied thought, and you have a sustained thought. And so you can uh, try to develop, try to, to be, it's like an analytical method. You can use an analytical method to uh, bring up the different parts that you need to, to uh, find a way to make the package work for you. Um, it's not a complete match with the five factors I just described, but one of my best friends is an elder uh, Sri Lankan uh, bhikkhuni named Ayasudina. And her metaphor for the parts of effort has to do with this driving analogy. So she says, uh, well, you turn, turn the ignition, you step on the gas, and then you have to steer. And so then uh, the steering... Uh, uh, is going to have to do with balancing right right energy with what else is happening in your practice it's it's placed in between the factor of sloth and torpor or laziness and the factor of restlessness so if you're feeling low, um, depressed, tired, um, dull in the practice, you want to increase the energy. But if you're feeling very energetic, you want to be kind of like cautious about increasing the energy because that could put your put the your meditation so it can be then out of control it's like putting more fuel in something that's already burning too fast and so in that case if you find that you already have got a lot of restlessness in the practice then 
you may uh, need to be applying, a, trying to develop a different factor, the factor of concentration, in order or that to try to apply more equanimity, to try to uh, bring down that, that overactive restlessness. This happened to me on one occasion. Uh, I, I used to, uh, before I entered the monastic life, I, I was... I had an opportunity to, in between being an employee sitting at a desk and being a a bhikkhuni, I hiked the Appalachian Trail. Uh, So I was outside um, hiking every day for, um, actually it took me 18 months in total. And um, that's a good good example of uh, another good, good metaphor because it's completely impossible to conceive that this body would be capable of hiking 2,000 miles. It's, it's just, that's not in the cards. And yet, however, um, I you had a companion who was luckily a very slow uh, walker, so I didn't get uh, worn out or injured. And it just, uh, you know, every day what was on my day planner for the day was to hike. And, and just, you know, sometimes we'd walk four miles, which is a really slow walk. Sometimes, eventually, we, a couple of times I did 20 miles, but usually it was like less than 10 miles a day, and you know, eventually um, got there. Um, and so you, you can do this. This is how to, one of the ways to get to um, awakening is to just set yourself in the right direction and keep going. Um, uh, but after I had hiked, uh, or I should say while I was hiking, when uh, the uh, autumn came around, I went back to the Bhavana Society and stayed as a resident during the winter months. Uh, I had so much uh, physical strength and so much aerobic fitness, my energy was at such a different level than what it was for for me normally that then uh, sitting down on the meditation cushion... I would be uh, mindful and, you know, flooded with lots and lots and lots of insights, but I actually didn't, at that time, I didn't know how to hold it. If I knew what I knew now uh, and had the opportunity to get into an exercise program to become so fit that I had such an extraordinary amount of physical energy coming into the meditation cushion, then I think I would... Um, be uh, much more intentional about bringing concentration and equanimity into the practice in order to use the the physical energy that I had. Um, I remember that the the um, uh, Buddha walked thousands of miles all over northern India, and all of the monks the uh, means of transportation that was used by Buddhist monks was walking. Uh, and so uh, having uh, that kind of physical fitness is also related to having um, kind of physical energy that supports the right effort that we bring into meditation. Uh, so uh, we will... Um, Turn on the ga- turn the ignition, press the gas, um, uh, steer the car, um, 
And then uh, the uh, next part is to know, and this is an Iosudinus metaphor, the next part is to know what your destination is and keep going until you reach the goal. Uh, she said that in her observation, the most common thing that happens is people start practicing and they start practicing well and then at some point they get distracted and rather than continuing to pursue what is offered in this Dhamma up to the highest level that's that's possible to achieve in this in one lifetime, they just um, are distracted and stop um, trying to strive to uh, go beyond in their practice. Uh, they may be that uh, because of knowing how to meditate and knowing how to be uh, mindful, that one's life has become more calm, uh, more peaceful, more enjoyable, more relaxed. One has become more skillful in dealing with afflictive emotional states. And so you've obtained a happy life as a result of meditation. And for some people, maybe that's that's enough. Uh, but we could uh, compare that to, you know, I gave you a map and I've showed you the way to get to New York. And you went and you started and something happened, you know, you ran out of gas or you, somebody offered you a job in Chicago and, and you, or you took, instead of following the path I gave you, you went off on a different path and then you get lost in the back rows wandering here and there trying to find your way back onto the correct path because you didn't follow the map. So there's a lot of different ways that you can like not be oriented towards go to the goal. Um, so that's the last part of, of right effort is that you want to um, follow it until you reach the goal. Um, I'm going to um, add uh, one more set of uh, Pali uh, words uh, to to uh, this evening, and then open for some uh, discussion or some uh, questions. Uh, um, uh, two sets, okay. So one way of looking at it is in terms of those five factors I spoke of: chandam janeti vayamati viryam arabati chittang paganhati parahati. Another set is uh, four kinds of effort. Uh, the effort to prevent evil and wholesome states of mind from arising. Um, the effort, once those states have arisen, to abandon them. Uh, uh, the effort to arouse wholesome states that have not yet arisen. And then the last one is when those wholesome states have arisen, to make them uh, sustained, continuous, to make them grow, to make them develop to perfection. So uh, when I gave the um, guidance uh, earlier, at the beginning of the meditation sit, I suggested that you could uh, try to prevent evil states from ruining your meditation by imagining that you put your plans and worries in a suitcase and park them at the door. So you think of whatever's going to 
hinder your meditation and think of putting it down. Um, then uh, uh, you would, uh, in terms of abandoning the unwholesome states, uh, frequently there's instruction given that um, if you're meditating and you find that you've lost your meditation or that something, uh, some um, one of the hindrances like anger or um, greed or, or um, restlessness is invading and preventing that you you just uh, notice the distraction uh, without getting into a fight about it, but just notice the distraction and then come back to your object. So that's an example of a technique for abandoning. And then um, the technique for uh, arousing a wholesome state would be, let's suppose... uh, it's um, mindfulness. We want to arouse uh, mindfulness and uh, giving uh, attention to having a, a nice p- positive connection with our with our um, object of meditation. So if you start a meditation sit by taking a couple of deep breaths and noticing the sensation of breath, and, and if you uh, uh, take a few minutes at the beginning of meditation to explicitly notice the posture or notice the uh, sensations. Sometimes people do a body scan and they notice uh, the uh, sensations in the body uh, from the toes up to the head and back again. And that practice might be um, a preliminary practice to get them firmly into the present moment. And then they may um, uh, try to not be so much with doing this explicit efforting, but just to make the mind go towards stillness. And so those things are all examples, very simple examples that are related to sitting for meditation, which is what we're interested in, one of the things we like to do. How those are wholesome dhammas which support being able to meditate. And that's part of arousing uh, what wasn't there before. That's the third of the of the four right efforts. And then on the last one, uh, for sustaining, uh, sometimes one imagines or uh, just think of making the attention as continuous as possible so that every single moment of the in-breath and the out-breath, the attention is continuing to be in touch with the breath. Or sometimes you think of the um, objective meditation sort of expanding so that it fills your awareness. You've got a field of awareness, and let's say you're listening to this talk, but you're also aware of like the curtain behind me and the noise of the traffic or something like that. But the thing that you're primarily focused on can, by focusing the attention, can come to fill the entire field. So that then if you're really paying attention to my voice, you might not notice the traffic in the background. So one can do that as a way of the forthright effort of uh, developing, growing, sustaining, and perfecting uh, the meditation. Uh, There are many other ways to think of it, but uh, it's good to be aware of 
what's happening in your meditation. If your meditation is weak, you keep losing it, you, want, you need more energy to be able to be successful in meditation, then you can say, well, which kind of energy do I need? See, so you're not just, like a dummy, you're not just step on the gas, you're also steering. You're also using your intelligence to know what it is you need. Now, one, three more Pali words. Um, this is about the, um, uh, about specifically as a factor of awakening, a factor of enlightenment. One is an element, um, it's called, it's Arabati, is, uh, and then um, um, Arabati Datu, Nikkama Datu, and Parakama Datu. Uh, Arabati is uh, arousing or stirring up. And so when you're stirring up, what are you doing? Okay. Here's my cake mix, and it's in a bowl, and I'm stirring it up. Okay. So this uh, stirring up is like you're still inside the corral. You're still at home. You're still in your ordinary samsaric existence. And within, uh, like, uh, you're still in the home life. You're still in the householder's life. You're still surrounded by all your social things that are going on in your life. And so then, within that context of being at home, of being in samsara, uh, you're applying energy. That's the first energy. Then the next energy is called nikkama, uh, which is uh, one of the meanings is to escape, to go out. And so that means when you give up, you sold your condo, give up your job, get on the trail, <laughs> and you go out beyond, you get away from the gravitational pull of all your social surroundings and all your obligations and your jobs in the ordinary humdrum of ordinary life and you you take yourself to something that's going outside. It could be that you'll take a 10-day retreat. That would be an example of going outside, uh, going beyond. Or if you decide to um, renounce and um, become uh, a Buddhist monastic. Or you could you could come to our new monastery, especially if you're a lady, and um, because we don't quite yet have the facility for the gentleman to have a place to stay, but uh, you, uh, someone can come and uh, have a temporary monastic life immersion experience where you could wear white, you can keep your hair, but you can wear a white robe and take eight precepts and live like a Buddhist nun for a period of time. These are ways to, to go to go beyond. But the main thing is um, just the pull of the ordinary liking and disliking and emotional reactivity and the social pressure and all of that to get outside of that so that you're able to focus fully on the bhavana to make like your development of your insight, development of wisdom, development of the mind to be like priority number one. And you get that by getting outside of the gravitational pull of all of these other things. 
and then the third one is parakama, and the para, that's, that's uh, going to the other side. And so when you go to the other side, that means that you will have crossed into a stage of awakening. Uh, that you will have uh, changed in a way that you're not ever going to go back again. Even before you uh, could get certified for having obtained stream entry, uh, it could happen that you will, um, in the uh, for the sake of the tape, I don't know any uh, respectable uh, Buddhist place that gives certificates for stages of enlightenment, although we've heard of it uh, by word of mouth that there might be some place in the world where they give uh, certification, but in our uh, tradition it's more uh, uh, for uh, personal discernment and a consultation with your teacher, but we do believe that it is possible uh, to have stages of awakening and not only for monks, it's possible for people who are dedicated to the Dhamma, who devote their life to the Dhamma, to wake up definitely possible, and there are many, many, many people who are stream enterers in this world. Um, if you have that, and even if you don't have it, you might know that there was something that, um, like, I always reacted in this way to this trigger when I was childish, and I've gotten beyond that now, and I wouldn't go back. I would never see it that way. I understand about um, impermanence and how things are constantly changing. And I wouldn't ever have the distorted view that I can um, fix my problem or, or that you know something is going to make me happy forever in that in that way. So so when we have real life changing insights and when we feel that our inner uh like that the subconscious has been transformed as a result of a change in view, a change in our in our understanding, um that uh certain uh components of our the ongoing um uh fear and greed that perhaps drove us in the past, that those things are gone in a way that they're not coming back. You could say, well, in that way that is a parakama datu, that I have gone beyond. So, uh, But we can then imagine what is the kind of energy that's involved when we have the potential or the possibility to really be in that stage of practice that's really transformational and how to apply that. So then the wisdom again here is to try to know uh, if we need more energy to know where are we, what, what, what's our situation and what's the right kind of energy to use within that particular situation. Uh, somebody who's in the corral surrounded by uh, the stress and pressure and the uh, distraction of of um, 
family life and home life and social relationships and responsibilities at work and being in contact with a lot of uh, colleagues who are not on the path at all, uh, that needs a particular kind of energy. Uh, When you're on a long meditation retreat, that needs a different kind of energy. Uh, When you feel like uh, some kind of real meditative or real dhamma attainment is uh, within view and you feel that you could if you only knew how that then that will take a different kind of energy Uh, so in that way um, in some if you study the map and you know different components of energy um in terms of starting, sustaining, starting, accelerating, feeding, sustaining, and and um, and um, uh, uh, perfecting energy in terms of whether you're trying to dissolve something unwholesome or trying to develop something wholesome in terms of uh, what your situation is, uh, then you could be more skillful in uh, making right effort or right energy something that will um, help you to move uh, in the right direction, keeping yourself carefully aligned so that all your effort is going in the direction of um, this path of practice, uh, which leads to the end of suffering. So that's the end of my formal remarks, and there's a whole 15 minutes left for uh, questions and also for me to tell you about our new monastery. Do you use that? Okay. It sounds though, um, so, um, right effort or energy could be helpful with um, dealing with, with um, overcoming addictions and compulsive behavior then, huh? uh, Yes. Uh, you could say, you know, as a Buddhist and as a recovering alcoholic, I know for sure that it's not only substances, but life itself is an addictive process if we don't have wisdom. And so then uh, the uh, uh, right effort can certainly apply. And it's not just a stupid energy that I'm going to use my willpower and grip my teeth until I, until I get sober, you know, because that, that's not what works. It's using it skillfully um, to, uh, you know, apply to the... To, uh, uh, creating the supporting conditions that enable us to substitute um, a wholesome uh, uh, mental factors and to basically keep the mind uh, uh, as much as possible, keep the mind fully occupied with wholesome mental factors so that then the unwholesome or negative or damaging or, or dangerous mental factors don't have a chance to, to uh, get a grip and take hold and dominate the mind. And then when you have unwholesome factors, sometimes they can be... Um, if a person is falling into a strong emotional state, 
um, you can feel like powerless, like this state of hatred or despair or anxiety is so dominating and I wish I could get rid of it. I would love to get rid of it, but I can't. And it just is there, you know, day after day, like a, and we're like a, a dumb ox just taking the, the suffering and holding the suffering of these bad mental states. So uh, learning how to let go of these strong complexes is part of the first right, of the second right effort of abandoning the unwholesome states that are present. And I suggest uh, using the analytical method to break it down to the components and then uh, find the the tricks that you need to uh, take the the juggernaut of a strong negative emotional state that might be persistent and and learn how to change like it's like taking a, un, unhooking the gears of a machine so like um, you've got a strong emotional state and one part of it is a view you think those so and so's are always doing such and such to me and it's not fair and so then you can just take that part of it which is like the perception and you can just uh, see about transforming this perception which is supporting negative emotions and say well is that really true is that you know can I look at it in a different way in a bigger perspective can I find a large enough perspective that I can see well actually that person is also just a suffering being who's trying to you know trying to survive in this world and um, and um, and then get out of the uh, get out of that wrong perception. So that's one of many ways that in which you can uh, uh, disaggregate uh, a, a heavy emotional complex in order to break it down. But that's not enough. You got to bring in the wholesome to substitute, so that either like loving kindness or or wisdom is becomes the the thing that you're interested in. Yeah. So for sure. Thank you for a wonderful talk. I really appreciate your analogies and bringing it into the um, everyday life, <laughs> make it easier to understand. Um, I was wondering if you can do a little bit more on um, the, the factor stirring up. In, so like in, when we're at home sitting on the cushion and you know, how, how do we get that energy going? Mm. Uh, to me, uh, there, there's a, a way in which we have, uh, like the unenlightened animal nature, uh, that which we share with monkeys, and that's w- that which we share with all humans everywhere, even those who don't have any opportunity to be within any of the wisdom traditions. And we have we have that within us. We inherited it. Uh, so we have the ability to, to um, uh, respond, especially to things about status, uh, things about uh, 
uh, resentment or judgmentalism, um, things about um, uh, the need for love or the need or need neediness, uh, the, all of those kind of things, we have them. And when we wake up or when we develop in the Dhamma, we don't lose what we had before. We still have it. But then there's something else that develops, which is uh, uh, like a wisdom point of view, uh, which is able to be sort of behind and above this process. So here I am, I'm going through my life, and my child is driving me crazy with uh, her irritating behavior. Um, and I, I can feel that this is irritating. I can feel that um, partly it's my pride or my self-esteem as a mother that I think I must be a bad mother because my child is behaving so badly. And uh, partly um, it's... Uh, like a, a greediness that I would like just like to be you know left alone so I can take a nap or something, and so so there's so then I can uh, then what what's happening now is dhamma vichaya is happening because then I'm analyzing my reactivity and at the same time that I'm here in this situation being annoyed, uh, something else is happening that I'm a scientist in the laboratory uh, studying. A phenomenon, and the phenomenon is what is going on with my mind, and I'm studying it with an attitude of compassionate interest, and just becoming changing from being trapped by the situation to being interested in the situation is is a big starting point, and then it may be that beyond that, um, what we develop when we have chances for like being on retreat or getting a different perspective, that there's uh, behind and above our everyday reaction, there's a wisdom that sees this is all just part of nature playing itself out. All of it is impermanent. It all has the characteristic of being uh, dukkha, which we know is the first noble truth, so we're not really surprised. And uh, it's not me, not mine, not myself. So I am not actually the owner of that child who's annoying me in this in this metaphor. So then um, those would be ways that actually um, working while you're in the corral is the most richest. It's a very rich, abundant, uh, powerful place to do the practice. There's a lot to be gained from uh, doing that self-investigation and uh, developing the the part of the mind which is able to remain stable and equanimous even while a different part of the mind is sort of in reaction. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.